This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radio Therapy, your Sunday morning weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr. Autonomy. We've got Kent pushing the buttons for us and sitting beside me are those same three individuals you're coming to know and love just as I do, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr. Malice, also known as our trusty GP, our emergency room doc and our child psychiatrist. We've also got an hour of fascinating chat to bring you right now. Are you a carrot or a stick type of person when it comes to personal motivation? Or are you the sort of person who just oozes willpower and doesn't require reward or punishment to evolve into the person you really want to be? Well, we're going to be talking about taxes on soft drinks today and whether Australia is going to follow in the footsteps of Britain. And it seems there's a lot of debate about whether it's a good thing or not. And at the heart of this debate is this question of whether it's better to let people regulate their own lives and trust them to make the best decisions for themselves or whether what we actually need is someone else to nudge us in the right direction. For example, the government. As someone who's called Dr Autonomy on air, you might have an inkling about which way I lean on this. But we're going to hear all the ins and outs from Lolly Doc today so that you can make up your own mind. As well as that, we're going to talk about bullying. Have you ever had to deal with a bully? Maybe at work or during your school days? Or maybe you're grappling with the impact of bullying as a parent? Well, Dr Malice, the most unbully-like person I know, if that's actually a word, is going to explore bullying for us today on the show. He's going to look at how bullying begins and perhaps more importantly, what stops a bully. If you don't listen to this segment, I'm going to get you. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe I actually put that in. And, And just when you thought that was it, we're also going to look at waiting rooms. Metaphorically, of course. Have you ever found yourself waiting for longer than you'd like in an emergency room waiting room or even just a GP clinic? I'm guessing the answer is yes. What happens to you during that time and how do you react? Did you know that the way you react during that time can in fact change the way that the doctor relates to you and not just in terms of their manner but in terms of what they actually diagnose you with? Yeah, I didn't know that either. But Ms Medic knows and she's going to tell us all about it. So get that coffee on and settle in for some ketchup, some laughs and more as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Ms Medic, good morning. Good morning. Are you going to get me? I'm going to get you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll listen, I promise. I sound so tough. You do. (laughs) Lolly Duck, good morning to you. Good morning. Who needs a comedy festival when we have you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the sarcasm starts early. Um, I don't know if any of you heard the intro last week, Anabolic's intro on the show, but she she was talking about, you know, the comedy festival being on, and they talked about humour, actually, last week a lot. And uh, she finished her introduction with this awesome, um, so three psychiatrists walk into a radio studio. <laughs> I so wanted to put that in this morning, but it was just a cheap, cheap um, throwback because it was all her work last week. Love it. <laughs> Dr. Malice, good morning. Uh, I'm just a little intimidated after that getcha. Is that yeah. a soft, seductive version of a bullying? <laughs> yeah, it couldn't be a bully if I tried, no, really. all right. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I'll just yeah. say as a playful example. Exactly. Okay, yeah. wonderful. Important to distinguish between play and genuine intentional bullying. It is indeed. We're going to hear Absolutely. much more about mm. that later. Especially right? when you use the stick. Yeah. <laughs> And carriage. It's important yeah. to have a safe word. <laughs> <laughs> Lolly Doc. Good morning. Good morning. I know you've been scouring the newspapers this week um, and you've come in in a funny outfit that reminds me of some sort of Greek traditional costume. And what were Whoppa! those steps that... <laughs> steps that you were doing on your way into yeah, the studio. That's, that's called the Zorba. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it doesn't really translate. No, it does doesn't. It? We need a we need one of those webcams at Triple R. We do. We do, but we don't really. Sunday morning. I don't know. I haven't got my makeup on or anything. <laughs> um, I like to find articles and journal um, research that kind of really pushes the boundaries of good quality research, and this is not 
that particular research, but I'm going to tell you about <laughs> it anyway. This is from the European Journal of Nursing, and, and they looked at um, patients with heart failure. And we know that heart failure is a chronic condition where exercise tolerance is a real issue. And um, one of the problems, of course, is the less exercise you do, the less inclined you are to do exercise, and therefore you become more unwell, and it's really quite hard to get off the couch. And um, we know that that has on flows from with a whole lot of other things, muscle wasting and, and, and those sorts of problems. So this particular group looked at um, Greek dancing as an intervention for muscle strength and what they did was they <laughs> they attached a whole lot of dy- dy- dynometers, which are little kind of muscle um, electrical um, impulse measurers and uh, onto patients who are 30, 73 years and older with heart failure and they put them through an intensive Zorba rehab <laughs> program for about three months. And then they measured that against patients who didn't go through that program. And they discovered that uh, these elderly patients who could Zorba could jump higher, could walk longer, and... Jump higher. <laughs> that's right, and broke more plates. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and hips. And hips, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so it was, a, it was just an interesting article about uh, involvement in a community-based... Uh, program rehab program which are quite important one of the other side effects of this particular program was that they had a very big uptake so it was very culturally focused uh in greece and and these people in, joined it uh, joined in enjoyed it and um it had an uptake of about 95 percent. so people stayed with the program for three months which is a big bonus so it was just it was just an interesting thing just triggering off a whole lot of things about how would you set up a rehab program in australia what motivates people to come would it be the nutbush it could be nutbush could be, <laughs> it's what probably it not be? zumba crocodile rock i don't know <laughs> The um, but it's really important. Uh, chicken dance. Yeah, I'm just doing actions on radio, the guys. Mac- the macarena. The macarena. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, what do you know about the zorba? Can you describe it for us? Um, yeah, I do. I, I've done a zorba. Or sing at, a, it? at a no. Well, no. We, maybe we could play a bit a little bit later. Um, the zorba involves a slow build up mm. to a to a kind of a. It starts off as a as a kind of a solo type dance. So there's people standing next to each other. It's a bit like a line dance, if mm-hmm. you like, um, where there's movements with your arms held up um, to your side. Um, so that exercises your arm muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the the occasional crossover of legs and oh. the bending down with a bit of a clap. Oh, and then you join in at the end. Yeah, so you join in at the end and you make a circle and then there's a bit of kicking and it gets fast and everyone gets crazy and pins money to the bride. <laughs> and it gets faster and faster, doesn't it? Yeah. I have um, an elderly couple who live a couple of doors down from me at home and they're Italian and once a week they go to this club and, you know, they eat delicious food and they dance all night. And I would never have imagined that they would have had the energy, you know, looking at them sitting in the front yard to be up and dancing. But without fail, every time I pass them once they've been out dancing the night before, you know, they tell me all about it and they show me these photos... And they're just full of life as well and so excited about this night that they've had and sort of counting down the days to the next week. And it always makes me think about the benefits of not only the physical exercise but that community aspect and the, um, the happiness and joy that it brings about. Well, I, yeah, and you make an excellent point. And I, like I, this research, even if it's not the highest quality in the world, it does really speak to if you are going to ask people to exercise, because we know how important it is, it's perhaps important to think outside the box as clinicians. And I, I had a patient recently who moved to Melbourne from... Uh, northern Queensland and it was important to get her sort of into the community and doing some exercise because of some chronic health issues and during our consult we spent the time googling local um, line dancing um, <laughs> clubs and that was part of what I, you know I thought was beneficial to her is to help her settle into a new town and get her doing some exercise if you can actually get someone doing something that they really enjoy then you they're so much more likely to continue it than rather than say you need to go to the gym or you mm. need to walk every day. It's it's important for people to get other benefits from it in order to commit to these things. And then it's just about fun. It's not about Absolutely. I've got to go do some exercise. It's like and hey, so yeah, the exercise is almost just as a secondary byproduct of them 
enjoying themselves. Yeah, Dr. Mallon. In fact, the historical view would say that dance and music were integral to culture. And the oddity is that we've had a, a whole decade or two of exercise without music. Because, in fact, historically, all cultures actually hum, play instruments, and have an innate rhythm. And that's, in fact, why prescribing exercise with rhythm is a return to some basic values. It's not novelty. It's actually novelty from the perspective of the last few generations where it's been stripped away. But this is going back to our basic roots. Mm -hmm. Olivia Newton-John would disagree with you, though. She'd say that she's always been physical. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're really showing your age. But has she got a swagger? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, she, she's not... Hang on, this is going somewhere anyway. else now. I right. was thinking... I wasn't actually thinking about Olivia Newton-John. I was thinking about <laughs> our special guest from last month when we yes. got, we were on, um, Stephen oh, no. Skov, yes. um, music therapist. And Absolutely. again, you know, the beauty of dance and music and all of that stuff. And especially in that segment, it was at the end of life experience and how many hymns and church and religious and uh, synagogues and Islamic uh, chants are actually end-of-life transition media Mm. to to transform that that process. If it sounds like we're talking on and on about this, we are because we're secretly trying to get the Zorba ready to play you. (laughs) (laughs) And it's taking a little bit longer than we thought it would. Are we ready or should we go to another segment? No, all you need to do is press play. It's really easy. Oh, we just have to press... Oh, (laughs) it's so easy, he says. Stay with us, listeners. And and if you haven't left us, we're going to play you a bit of the Zorba. So... Get up off that couch. Grab a Have plate. a bit of a dance. Smash it. <laughs> Have a bit of a dance around. But don't go too far because we're going to be back to talk waiting rooms. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. That was a special birthday treat for Steve. Who's Steve? Steve? Just some guy. Okay, great. Happy birthday, Steve. You're on radiotherapy in case you weren't sure. Uh, This is Dr. Autonomy and you're with Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr. Malice. And that was the Zorba. We did actually have a practice at the beginning of that, but then we ended up back on our seats. I hope you did have a dance at home. It's very fun. I like the whole speeding up thing. And thank you for that caller with that joke, which I just can't repeat on air. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's change tack, Miss Medic. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk waiting rooms and what happens when we're in the waiting room waiting to be seen by a doctor. Yeah. Well, I think that most of us have had the experience <laughs> of an annoyingly long wait, either in your GP or outpatient department clinic or in an emergency department. And it's very frustrating because, of course, I know, you know, People have busy lives and people are not feeling well and they just really want to be attended to as quickly as possible. Um, but there was an article, a couple of articles stood out to me when I was looking through some of the um, medical uh, literature that came out over the last few weeks. So one article was about waiting rooms and how we can make them more positive environments for patients to sit in. And the other article, which was not directly associated but seemed to me to be linked, was the an article on a, a set of studies that have demonstrated that a patient who is more difficult in terms of various markers or aggressive or um, questioning the doctor's credentials or a number of different factors, that they actually had a significantly higher likelihood of being misdiagnosed as a result of the uh, being that extra bit difficult. And this was independent of time so when they looked at this in the study there was the same amount of time spent with the difficult and the non-difficult patient but the 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 theory behind this is that managing the difficulty takes up a certain proportion of the time and the headspace of the doctor so much so that it can distract from the actual clinical scenario and therefore you could be misdiagnosed. So it made me think, putting these two things together, 
if you get very worked up during the waiting room and you take that into your consult, you actually are doing almost yourself a disservice. And this is not something that is thought to be intentional on the behalf yes, of it's the... Yes, it's not a malicious... It's like, not malicious. You're being it's, rude to me, so I'm going to misdiagnose no, you. No, it, it's actually... It happens sort of as a consequence of just having to spend time and energy and brain space and maybe being distracted by managing the the other side of the the difficult nature of the of the consultation and not being able to solely focus attention on the clinical situation couldn't it work the same way you know as the patient if you're walking in i'm thinking about what i'm like if i'm angry or anxious or annoyed and you know and have a sort of intense emotion going on from the patient's perspective, if you walk in with all of that stuff going on, perhaps you're not quite as effective at describing what's been happening and remembering all the symptoms and really focusing on the information that you wanted to get across. Absolutely, and I'm sure that probably is part of it. And this, look, I don't know if we can call this hard science as such, but it does bring up, I think, something really interesting about what we bring and... um, and the way that, because obviously a doctor-patient interaction is a complex one. It's a relationship. And so what the patient brings can indirectly impact on their outcome. Mm. Um, so I thought I would, with all of that in mind, discuss my top tips for a healthy or productive waiting. Well, Did you want to say something? <laughs> no, I, I kind of felt like I missed my opportunity. Oh, so perhaps, sorry. no, no, no. no I, I was actually just going to say that. Interestingly, in my specialty, um, in our training program, one which of the, is uh, which is emergency medicine, one of the changes that we've had in the last five years is an introduction uh, of teaching about cognitive biases. So our biases that we take into our doctor-patient interaction is exactly what you're talking about, and the patient groups that you're describing the difficult patient with lots of medical problems, lots of com- complexity, the emotional patient with either anger or, or sadness or um, significant psychiatric history, patients um, who are drug intoxicated um, or alcohol intoxicated, all these patients bring to bring up cognitive bias within ourselves and we learn, or part of our, I guess, our maturity in being practitioners is learning how to recognize that we have those not not getting rid of them because i think it's very hard to get rid of those but actually being cognizant of those biases that you bring into the interaction making sure that you take those into account when you're assessing someone Mm. absolutely and look i think that that is really important but it could be even be more sort of simple like that's sort of the more extreme and being more aware but perhaps we're less aware when it's just the patient who's sort of huffing and puffing as they come into the consulting room or looking at their watch and you know that sort of thing that can kind of really have a maybe then the the practitioner isn't as aware but is already on the back foot and something's going on for them that impacts on their clinical reasoning and i think as you say, the doctor-patient relationship is really complex. So we're hopefully in the profession to try to do good. And so when your intention is met, before you've even said hello in a way, with huffing and puffing, it's going to arouse a defensive posture in you. Unintentionally, it's just human nature, the way we're wired up. And from a defensive posture, our cognition is not going to be online as much as if we're in a giving uh, frame. Absolutely. It's human nature. That's it. So I thought, keeping all that in mind, but acknowledging that, yes, waiting rooms can be really stressful environments mm. um, and <laughs> that you can naturally, you can, it's a, a normal reaction to start to get more sort of pent up and a bit more annoyed during an extensive wait. But um, I think... Having this reaction like, oh, yeah, great, you know, I've rushed here to get here on time so that I don't keep the doctor waiting. Now I'm being kept waiting. There's all these sick people around me and now if I can't control my own emotional reaction, I'm going to stuff up the consultation as well. Like, great. Well, I guess, yeah, and I think that's all very true, but I guess maybe we need to think about how we... um, what our expectations even are. So I would say um, I think that patients are almost in a better position to expect 
to wait. Mm. The fact is, is that the system simply does not work. It would not be able to run if GPs booked half an hour appointments for everyone. Mm. We just couldn't. With the way that we're funded, it's impossible. There would be no one working. It would be a charity. Like, you can't... It doesn't work because of the way in which, you know, these are businesses and they would not run with that. So people have to be booked sort of 15-minutely and that's just the way it is. But we know that sometimes... General practice is such, and it's similar with emergency departments, you've got no way of predicting what your caseload is going to be like that day in terms of how much time is going to be taken on certain things. I have no idea what my patient's going to be saying to me when they sit down in the chair, and it could be something that I really need to deal with then and there, and it's going to take me longer than 15 minutes. So I always say to my patients, if they have had to wait... I say, you know, I thank them for waiting. And I, if, they, if they question why that happened, I'll say, well, the, you know, the patients ahead of you needed more time and I would give that time to you if you needed it as well and sometimes that's the way it happens. Mm-hmm. So I say go in expecting to wait because this is the way the service Take works. Take a book. Take something and else so, to Yeah, do. and mm. hence here are my top tips. <laughs> All right, so number one is, yeah, ex- expect to wait acknowledge why you're likely to be waiting and it's not likely to be that um your gp is just stuffing around in their room on facebook it's it's because they've had spent longer with previous patients commonly or an emergency has walked in or a mum's come in with a sick child and the mum's also sick and has asked you to see them as well there's things that you, you kind of have to do because we are trying to do good um so expect to wait is my um, is my first tip. Yeah, that's a definite mental shift just yeah. then and there, isn't it? Yeah, mm. and I, I, I know that's a hard thing because I know that people have very precious, you know, time as well and they want to get back to work or something. But if you just sort of allocate maybe an hour for your 15-minute appointment, I think that you're going to be much better off. Um, number two, take something to uh, take the time to jot down a couple of things you want to discuss with your doctor while you're in the waiting room, and that can maybe keep things sort of more clear and you know exactly what you want to cover. Be mindful that if you're writing down 15 things, that that's not going to be possible to cover those all in one appointment. So either think about scheduling a double appointment next time and for this appointment circle the two things that you really want to cover. That would be a really good use of time. What about if number one was why are waiting times so long? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, we're actually going to get to that. That's my tip number four. Mm. Um, Tip number three, um, be prepared. Bring in something to do. Um, you know, read read a book, use your device. I think it would be good practice for all GP waiting rooms to offer free Wi-Fi. I think that would actually be really helpful and some clinics are doing this. I think that's actually going to be more useful than having some rubbish TV program <laughs> going on. But free Wi-Fi, people can do their own reading, do banking, etc. Then time, their time is being used productively. I've even seen my older patients often knit and do things mm-hmm. like that in the waiting room. Um, and if you've got kids, bring something in for them to play with. We do have toys there. They do get cleaned <laughs> fairly regularly. But like that, maybe there aren't something special for them to play with or a snack. That's all really helpful. Tip number four, um, if the weight is excessive in the clinical setting, so in like your GP clinic, and this is sort of happening happening consistently, discuss it with your doctor. If it upsets you every time, discuss it with your doctor. Maybe it might give your doc- but do it in a way that, you know, is not going to be sort of judgmental. Just say, I find it really hard that I'm always waiting here. It might give your GP or doctor time to reflect on their practice and maybe if they booked in more consistent breaks throughout the day. Or maybe something as simple as saying... Um, you should book the first two appointments of the day or my first two appointments after lunch where I'm I've caught up and I'm not running so behind. If that's something, you know, there can be really simple solutions if you're finding it sort of a really distressing weight. Would it be fair, Miss Medic, to say that there are certain GPs that have a different style of practice and that there may be some GPs that have more compatible I guess, time schedules with, with certain patient absolutely, groups? Absolutely, absolutely. So select your GP. But if you, if you find that if you're the, if you want your GP to sit and chat and talk through all the details, then that might be the GP that runs a bit behind. 
But if you want, you know, wham, bam, want your scripts and out of there quickly, then there's GPs that run a lot more like that. So you've got to pick and choose. You can't expect to have the GP that spends lots and lots of time with you should you need it but that they're running on time because those GPs tend to run a little bit behind. Mm. And it is, it's, it's simply that... So you have to kind of weigh up what are the pros and cons. Um, and tip number five, and this is more of a practical one. If you are sitting in the waiting room and you are starting to feel very unwell with chest pain, shortness of <laughs> breath, feeling faint, <laughs> do not just continue to sit there. Go and tell reception who can contact a doctor straight away. So, you know, and this is the same in emergency departments. If something changes and you're starting to feel very, very unwell, go back to the triage desk and tell them... Um, this is a business of trying to meet everybody's needs but it is a complex one it's really hard you would know lolly doc that waiting times is something you know that hangs over all of our heads and we don't we don't want to keep people waiting but we also want to provide really good care so it's a very very difficult system Mm. to get the balance perfect one of the difficult things that i think sometimes people don't appreciate is the is the conversations that are occurring for example in the emergency department it's not always about the really sick patient actually might be about the least sick patient but the patient who is having a a a, you know a death or their final admission to hospital and the family need you know a good hour of chatting and and consoling and explanation and then more family come in and we want to do a good job for those families as well and sometimes it's not just the sickest patients that take time but but sometimes the more complex or the saddest, I guess, stories. What are the strategies in the emergency department waiting room? Because I imagine you'd have people getting pretty irate sometimes yeah, about look, that way. There's, some, there's some, lots of interesting data and research about waiting times and how you set up your environment in the emergency department. And in fact, uh, in the last five years, three of the largest tertiary centres um, have had rebuilds of their emergency departments and contemplated having no waiting rooms at all, um, trying to facilitate patients coming into the department so they felt like something was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it's a bit of a, a bit of a fiction because they are going to wait anyway for all the things that people wait for, pathology, radiology, seeing a doctor, waiting for the inpatient unit to come down and have a chat to you, all those sorts of things. Um, but there are some... We know that uh, distractions do work. So, TV, I mean, TVs are on and Miss Medic mentioned the bad TV show and we do put that on on purpose. Jerry Springer is a favourite. Um, we have uh, we have uh, food and drink um, in, the de- in the department. The chairs are never comfortable. I never know why that is, but that's probably not such a bad thing. Um, but there are lots of techniques that, that you can use to set up the environment. And... and The hospital that I work in, we've set up, I guess, a a front-loaded system of care where a senior decision-maker will say hi to a patient early on and decide what sort of care they might need, and that sort of streams people to various parts of the department that can sometimes help too. So there are mature Mm. processes in place, but that may not always be apparent. I looked after a patient with an ingrown hair um, on Friday and they waited two hours and were a bit irate that they'd waited two hours for their ingrown That's hair. That's pretty and, good, two hours for an ingrown hair. Yeah, I thought so too. Anyway. Mm. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We've been talking about waiting rooms and we've been talking about the Zorba and now we're going to change tact and talk about bullying, I think. Dr Malice, over to you. Yes, just a a little follow-on from the previous segment that in the psychological field of medicine, this is one of the reasons that we try to offer appointment times on the hour or at least a punctual start because we're so aware that the actual clinical condition would be totally camouflaged, clouded, masked, whatever you want to say, by the frustration anxiety if the patient is kept waiting. Now... We try to keep to, you know, punctuality. And even in that environment, if there is a a slight delay, that can alter the whole session. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think individuals are highly sensitive to when their needs are met. 
and clearly a health need is a very profound intimate need and if that's not met when they think it should be it arouses the whole past history of past needs never being met and so there's a whole history psychologically we try to minimize we can't avoid but be cognizant of that and i think the apology or the explanation and the validation is critical to say this is really not at your expense it's in fact a, a reality of adult life but that's how it goes mm. Now that also perhaps segues into bullying and what actually do we mean by bullying when there's such a wonderful expression called bully for you which is like a celebratory comment. Now I've never that- heard that. Bully for you? I have never heard that. Uh, it applies to people over the age of 44. <laughs> Miss Medica, have you heard never that? heard of it. That's yeah. right. Oh, I've heard goodness. of it. I've, it's, oh, it's, well, and you're only in your 20s. I oh, so know. Bully is, for you. Yeah. No, it's a bully for you. <laughs> and it's, an, it's a bit of an American slang anyway. So in Australia, it is not as widespread. But certainly it's an odd expression when the connotation of bullying today is a very negative uh, experience in a relationship. Hmm. And so the conventional way that bullying is regarded in sort of a definition it it has to have three elements one it is a behavior that really needs to have some aggression in it that behavior can be verbal physical written cyberbullying, and so on but without aggression it's not really bullying unless of course it's the opposite where you withhold yourself completely but that takes a lot of aggro to do that so isolating yourself or others is also the negative image of bullying. Secondly, after saying that it's got to have aggression in it, there has to be an intent with it. So when you watch sport and you see two people shirt front, you know, in football where they go at each other, there's obviously a lot of aggression, there's a lot of intent, but it's on equal power. There's two players who prepared, and that's the third issue. There should be a power imbalance in bullying. And, of course, the ultimate uh, definer is that it's not a one episode. It's not a one-off, which could be that you've just lost the plot, you had a meltdown. But it has to be in a relationship that keeps going with this underlining pattern. So it's a behaviour that's aggressive, it's repeated with intent, and it's a power imbalance. Now, the... One that everyone's talking about nowadays is, of course, in the world of politics, and the embodiment of bullying is none other than (laughs) the Republican would-be candidate in the US election lead-up, Donald Trump. Now, whether he is or isn't a bully isn't the issue. I don't know his private life. I only know things about his publicity. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) However, there was a segment on television this week, which is why I brought this whole topic up, that he was in one of his platforms and one of the delegates got up onto the platform in an aggressive way and he balked and he had immediately two or three bodyguards and he put them between himself and the uh, ascending person, not necessarily an assailant, but possibly. Now, that almost belies what a bully actually is, that that behaviour. That while they're in the power balance of one up, they are all go. Once that's reversed, which is why the adage, have a showdown with a bully, I mean, with a lot of support, and they will back off because they don't actually have the conviction of what they're bullying about. It is a behavioural pattern. And so the question comes up, If this is what bullying looks like and it can be stopped and reversed in an instant by actually getting someone more powerful and intimidating, although that just puts it underground, it doesn't actually stop it. Because as soon as that circumstance is removed, the bully will reappear. So the question, what is bullying, becomes really a little bit more subtle and complex. And I'm deeply indebted to a colleague, Evelyn Field, and a friend also, who introduced me to a book uh, by a French author called Marie-France Hirigoyen, who's written a remarkable book that's been translated from French called Stalking the Soul. Now, this book apparently has changed French law about bullying because it, she's a psychoanalyst, uh, Marie French, and has highlighted what she terms emotional bullying and the erosion of identity. Now, this is where it gets really difficult that if we're in a relationship like this, whether in the school setting, 
in the workplace, at home, or any intimate relationship. If this process is not recognised, it leads to an erosion of our identity. So it is really a powerful sort of process, and at the beginning we're never aware of just how potent that sort of humiliating remark, the restrictive remark, the put-down... But when it accumulates without let-up, and let's remind ourselves the definition, it's repeated. And if it's repeated, 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 when you get to the end game of the bullier, he or she has absolutely demolished your self-confidence because the feedback you're getting in the intimate relationship is one of you are always one down, you're possibly worthless, and in the end you must begin to self-doubt. Are you really worthless? And in fact, one of the hardest experiences that there is in the bullying relationship is recognising that it's going on. Because we all have a, a sort of a fallback position. Oh, they're going through a difficult phase. They're irritable. They're just uh, sort of... Or the other way, they're bitchy. I mean, whichever way, it's not a gender-specific condition. It's a human condition. Now, this brings us to the fascinating point of the everywhereness of bullying. And if bullying is everywhere, meaning in every culture, in every relationship, the potential is there, how come we don't all bully? It seems a, a reasonable question. And the obvious answer is that there's a lot more worth in being cooperative in the long run than being bullying and one up in power versus one down. And so culturally, those systems where bullying is embedded have got a net natural end point, and cultures have that too. When that, leaders who are bullies get their citizens to vote for them, go to war, and eventually if it's not a just war, and we can, that's another topic, mm. but the bullying war actually usually loses because the coalition of reasonable cooperative others rises to the occasion. Now, the same thing can happen in the home. And there the child is often regarded as the victim, but we never often talk about the child as the bully. And why should that be? Now, that's another question, but it highlights the essential nature that we have to look at, that bullying is best understood as a relationship generationally passed on. Mm. And so if we just frame it in the individual in this episode, we're going to miss the essence. Mm. I'm curious as to what makes a bully a bully. Why, 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 does, why does a bully suddenly bully or, or well, carry it, on that behaviour? Again, I come back, this is a great question because we're all curious to, you know, it's not a nice thing to be a bully, yet it's, it's a, a regarded. And in fact, this bully for you comment, there was a phase in culture when a bully is actually held up with esteem. You know, look at him or look at her, what she can do, what he can do. Now, there are obviously positives. It's, I say this with trepidation. But when a bully bullies a bully, it's for a motive other than the authentic bully, which is to intimidate and put down. Here it's to rescue others, the victims. So is the bully gaining, is their, their reward feeling better about themselves now, because they're making someone else feel spot worse. on this is what is the essence of it a bully actually feels better about themselves in a perverse relationship now i use that word advisedly that this is not normal and so to understand the perversity why should someone feel better when they inflict humiliation and in the worst case shame or if you want the worst case actually physical threat of life and indeed, some bullies become murderers. But how could they derive benefit and pleasure from it? And there we enter, which we won't go into, the whole area of the perversion of sadism. There's a whole subculture where individuals get pleasure from inflicting pain. Now, the other part of that equation is what is called the SM relationship, sadomasochistic. So a sadist really needs a masochist to partner them for this relationship to keep going. Miss Medic. So is this then something that's hardwired and then it can't be changed? Because it sort of it sounds like if you've got this you're set up to derive pleasure from seeing somebody else um, you know, humiliated, then 
what makes that stop? Now, well, perhaps could I thank you for that question because this is the essence of the root of bullying. It's before going, what makes it stop? What makes it start? Hmm. And in fact, it's not no so well. It becomes hardwired, but it comes hardwired in the nursery. So the wiring that we all live with actually becomes hardwired by the repetition through infancy, childhood, adolescence and so on. And so the adult is by then so-called hardwired. But in fact, that's why I introduced the concept but won't go into it. It's a generational experience. And very often the so-called bullying parent has in turn been bullied. Uh, uh, not necessarily intentionally, but at the at the root of all this is what is called relational trauma. It sounds, it sounds almost like it's evolution gone wrong, like it's survival yes. of the fittest. It's someone, yeah. I guess, posturing that they're fitter than someone else. Now, isn't that the mm. summary of Donald Trump? That mm. people say he's <laughs> posturing that I know how to run business, you know, I've run casinos, real estates, and I've done... All badly, yep. Well, he's still a billionaire. Uh, That's not a marker of success, but he's done something. Now, could it be that he's done bullying very well? (laughs) Except that's not how it works in international politics. Diplomacy is a very refined form of bullying, and you have to be refined, which at the moment, from the evidence, Donald seems not high on the stock of refinement. No. (laughs) Um, I guess I'm thinking about this as a parent, you know, if you are aware of bullying in the schoolyard um, and your child being bullied or worse, your child becoming a bully. Um, But also personally, if you were experiencing bullying, which I think you've alluded to this concept of sort of emotional abuse as well um, in personal relationships, what are your options? You know, it it sounds like bullies can be stopped from what you've said and it's about someone else standing up and someone else perhaps with more power. You know, what are the options? Well, we're in a very fortunate situation in Australia where there's actually legal gui- or guidelines and legal statutes about f- crossing a threshold. And so you raise the question in schools. There are guidelines in most schools of what it what needs to be done is first acknowledgement that it's happening, then reporting process, a due process of informing the bully and their parents, obviously in a child's case, the victim and their parents, having a uh, meeting about it and then having various tariffs or or, uh, consequences if this behaviour does not stop, the ultimate being suspension. You get rid of the bully, but that's not actually stopping it. That's removing it to another setting. Mm -hmm. When we come to emotional abuse, the question becomes much more sublime and subtle because usually both parties are involved. As I mentioned, one is the perpetrator, and now we've fortunately got the Royal Commission into Family Violence just handed down this Mm -hmm. week. Now, there's a fascinating cultural concept, which I learned from that, which is called dowry bullying. In certain cultures, dowry is an essential part of the marriage contract. And unfortunately, there are abuses of that cultural heritage by partners, usually the man saying, unless you provide more money, I will report you for being not in this country or send you back to your parents in the country you came from. And this is actually cultural bullying. Hmm. Malice, I hate to do this, but I'm going to have to wrap you up in a minute because we've got to talk soft drinks and taxes. But are there any, I guess, take-home messages about bullying that you want to leave us with? I think the most essential message is bullying is real if it passes the smell test for you, if you think you smell bullying, have a talk to someone. You don't have to have a bruised face as evidence. A smell test for bullying is where it starts. There is a national centre against bullying in Australia, and in yeah. fact there's a kids' helpline for bullying as well, which is one eight hundred five five one eight hundred. And there is in fact also um, a cyber cyber smart program as well. You mentioned cyberbullying yeah. earlier, which was cybersmart.gov.au. Three triple R. We're going to change tack from bullying to talk a bit about this idea of the carrot and the stick, really. What works for you? What works for us as a culture? And as a working example, should we be taxing soft drinks to stop people drinking them? 
So interestingly, we, we this, this is not new, this concept of taxing uh, a behaviour or an item that results in, in health harms, and we've seen that with smoking, for example, or we've seen it with alcohol. Um, and it's come to light in 2016 because a couple of countries have, uh, a couple of quite... Um, Important countries, I guess, in the world scene have suggested a tax on um, on sugar, essentially. Yeah. So sugar in soft drinks. Uh, Britain, in their March 2016 budget, um, decided that they would introduce a uh, soft drink tax. I just want to take a little bit of a step back and just explain why sugar in soft drinks might be bad for your health and why it might be important to do something about it. So we know that um, sugar has a very interesting effect. So readily available, easily digestible sugar as opposed to, for example, sugar that you find in fibres in fruit. And we're talking about sugar that's added to various food substances. Um, it's absorbed very, very quickly and it has a, an impact on the two hormones that um, affect our sense of hunger, so leptin and insulin. And we know that when those two hormones are adversely managed by the body um, in response to sugar, that um, our sense of hunger is is altered, and it's altered not just for that particular meal, but altered in an ongoing fashion and changed permanently. Is this why when I have a little bit of chocolate, all I want is more chocolate? Uh, it, that's part of it. That is part of it. So um, chocolate's a good example of a sugar that's readily digestible. Um, your hunger returns very, very quickly, um, immediately after a sugar hit. Um, and your sense of hunger is, is, is diminished overall. So you actually eat more overall oh, calories no. than, than you would. <laughs> the council, he said. That's right. That's right. I, think, I think we might need longer than an hour. If you want to make a double appointment with next week that'd be great um so that's 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 one of the important implications of readily available digestible sugar the other issue is how much sugar is in uh, these soft drinks so uh to give you an example and i and i'm not going to give particular trade names but some energy drinks contain more than 11 grams of sugar so that's un, unadulterated, just add in some sugar straight into the drink. Do you drink. know what that is in teaspoons? Yep, so that'd be... So a, a teaspoon is 10, is 10 to 20 milligrams of sugar. Uh, so multiply so that by... Math. lots. you do the maths, it's lots. Wow. And a, a, a child should have, I think, three grams of sugar per day. Per day, day. Yep. correct, yeah. Uh, so it's it really is a significant impost. Um, if you want to make another comparison between uh, the health costs of sugar, say, versus smoking. So in the States, if we take the health costs of um, smoking, it's about $90 billion a year, the complications of smoking. If you look at sugar and we take, say, type 2 diabetes as a consequence of that, it's $140 billion. So there's both health impacts and cost impacts. And in fact, just last week, there was a large epidemiological study that was published that showed that adolescents who have high sugar intake in early life have a higher incidence of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Uh, so there is, a, I guess, a direct link between sugar intake and bad health outcomes down the track. So this is where we come to your carrot and stick argument about mm. taxing soft drinks. So what Britain has decided to do, and in fact Mexico has already impl um, uh, instituted this regime, and they've had a dramatic drop in one year of about 7% uh, in their soft drink usage, and their soft drink usage is very high, so 7% percent's a lot. Uh, what Britain's decided to do is, I guess, give tax brackets to, to various soft drinks. So if you've got less than five grams of sugar in your soft drink, you will not get taxed. If you've got between five and eight grams of sugar, in, you'll get taxed a little bit less. If you've got more than eight grams, you'll get taxed a lot. One of the positive benefits of that is that the soft drink makers will then go, well, hang on a sec, I don't want to get taxed that much, so I'm going to put in 7.9 grams of sugar into my thing and get into that lower tax bracket. And that does have ongoing health benefits. It does remind me of sort of carbon emission chats, doesn't it, where um, this idea of taxing something is actually about enticing people to change their behaviour, not just people who are buying the soft drinks, but obviously the people who make them and, and to do that differently. 
yeah. Well, <coughs> is it true that if it's at the chemical level that the sugar actually rewires your responses, your, your, your survival reflex actually is overridden because if it causes bad outcomes, your very survival is at stake, just like with smoking. So as human beings, we're pleasure-driven at the expense of our survival reflexes. Now, as a country where the government is meant to be looking after its people, it sounds absolutely reasonable. This is the question about free will because our free will already has been corrupted. It's, it's yeah. not an autonomy question. Well, that's the thing. So the people that, are, that question whether this is interrupting our free will are kind of ignoring the fact that the intense advertising that goes on <laughs> is already corrupting our free will in, in another direction. So we're already being forced into, with all the intense advertising and the predominance of and the availability. I mean, look how much of the supermarket shelves, like there's an aisle of soft drinks. Mm. Like that's insane. Um so we're already being well, corrupted. Can I just say, in that sorry, direction. that's not insane. That is the culture. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone who then uh, sort of deviates from deviates that deviates yeah. is regarded as like you're an oddball. You're looking after not drinking full sugar, whatever brand. Like, what's the matter with you? Yeah. So the question of what sanity comes into it. The whole insidiousness of, of uh, lower socioeconomic suburbs as well is another mm. issue too. So, you know, accessibility to fresh fruit, fresh veg- vegetables, mm. uh, in as opposed to fast foods and, and sugared um, drinks, that's another issue that takes away that concept of do we have a, do we have a choice? I always find it astounding... Um, <laughs> as someone who likes to fly the flag for autonomy, <laughs> that as a culture we think, yeah, people are unable to make the right choices for themselves and in order to change the decisions that they're making, all we have to do is make something more expensive and something less mm. expensive mm. and it will change the decisions that they make. Mm. I find that a really condescending view mm. of people's um, yeah. intelligence, to mm. be honest, yet it seems to work. But I guess there's also the knock-on effect that there's discussions about why this is now being taxed and those discussions are around health. So there's education that happens at the same time. You know, when it's in the media that we're going to tax soft drinks because they're very bad for you and they have all this hidden amount of sugar and how that sugar is addictive and how it can set children up for a lifetime of ill health, then it's... It's kind of bringing it to the fore as well and it's giving it that kind of bit of more of a punch that it's getting the media attention because all of a sudden there is money attached to it. Yeah. Dr. Also, it's based on actual evidence, not someone's whim. And if we recall back to the last century with seatbelts, people actually waited for the experiments that people who didn't have seatbelts knocked their heads and had many more fatalities and chronic illnesses. And the economy came from the evidence. So it's an education program, not an imposition like a dictatorial government. Mm. But there's also, like, there's a law with seatbelts. Like, you will be fined if you don't have your children restrained Mm. in the appropriate... So I think to think that all you have to do is show that something is the best thing Mm. and not attach any kind of, you know, fine or tax or anything punitive with it, it's, it's... you know, it's a nice thought, but we don't live in a <laughs> utopian society where everybody just does the best thing. I have to say, this conversation about sugar is reminding me of the superb conversation that Anabolics and Dr. Doolittle had with Michael Mosley, which was aired on Max Headroom a couple of Thursday nights ago, and you can get access to that on Radio On Demand. It's a fantastic conversation if you're interested in um, the impact of sugar on us um, in more detail. But that's it for us today. All of a sudden, it's 11 o'clock. We have been Radiotherapy. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Kent for pushing the buttons. Thank you to Marinara who let us in. And stay tuned because Einstein Agogo is coming up with some fascinating science. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.